0: Hello and welcome back to the rewind. I'm Josh, and this is a podcast where I watch a bunch of movies and talk about them with my friends. Today's episode is about a haunting in Venice. Joining me from his Venetian palazzo, it's our Agatha Christie correspondent, Fred Cobb. Fred, how's it going?
1: It's going great. Things are going swimmingly, you might say, because there's a lot of water in Venice. So
0: there yeah, is water, you know. Really I-, water, I think of. I, well, I had to rename you the Agatha Christie correspondent because, like, I forgot, like, I, I didn't pay that close of attention to this when it, when it first got announced and we first knew it was coming. And I'm like, oh, there's like a water of water in Venice. Are these people going to be on a boat? Fred's our boat guy, doom boat correspondent, doom vessel correspondent. It's like, no, it's actually not on a boat, but like the whole entire thing is essentially on water because it's in Venice. So, you know, if you just want to think of Venice itself, the, the land parts is one big vessel being carried by the canals, you know, maybe these people are on the, a doom vessel of their own in this movie. But again, it does take place in a Venetian palazzo. Because a haunting event is is uh, the third uh, Kenneth Branagh uh, Agatha Christie adaptation to come out in the last six years. He had 2017's Murder on the Orient Express, 2022's Death on the Nile, which uh, Fred joined us for a podcast on, and which was just like. Honestly, one of the most cursed casts and productions and strangest and weirdest and not so great films that we've ever even had, though, might have had some redeeming qualities. I I maybe thought it did at the time, according to my review. But like, you know, I think uh, it's kind of funny because we're going to talk about I think *A Haunting in Venice is probably objectively a better movie, even if like in parts I have some other criticisms of it. So it's just kind of funny to look back on my death on the Nile thoughts at this point now. But, you know. Here we are, Fred. Uh, it, it has it, he has a whole entire new, you know, cast of characters around, ar- around himself because you know he uh, Kenneth Branagh is still you know playing uh, the uh, Hercule Perot anyway, but he's also joined in this movie by a lot of other people. There is Tina Fey playing uh, Ariane, Ariane Oliver, a, a renowned crime all uh, crime novelist and old friend of Poirot's. There's uh, Jamie Dornan, who plays a doctor, a doctor to the family that is in this house that ultimately is the setting for the movie. Uh, Dornan obviously worked with Branna on Belfast, another movie that Fred joined us for, which, you know, centered on a young actor playing a stand in for Branna, who was played by Jude Hill who is also in this movie he plays the doctor's son so kind of funny the first two yes, things David everyone Norman is seen, son,
1: again yes
0: yes the first two things everyone is seeing Jude Hill in are uh, Kenneth Branagh productions in which he plays Jamie Dornan's kid uh very funny though i think it's cool he gets to do something a, a bit different here it's actually a really interesting performance i'm sure we'll talk about it a little bit but you know the the, the, the we get into the thrust of this movie like at the beginning, uh, Perot has just kind of banish himself to, you know, live like a, a sad life in a very beautiful city. He's just like, I'm not interacting with the world anymore. No one talked to me. I'm going to be sad and pensive and, you know, morose. And I'm going to hire some security guard to throw anyone into a canal that tries to talk to me. And that's just what he is. But uh, I, I, Tina Fey, I'm just going to call her Tina Fey. I'm don't. i going to keep messing up that name if I keep trying to say that first name. It's, it just looks weird. Uh, but Tina Fey comes and tries to, like, you know, snap him out of it and says, hey, I have, I have an idea for you. Something that will, you know, get your detective juices flowing. There is this. Uh, psychic who is going to be you know trying to re- reconnect with uh, this uh, old uh, opera singer or is she an opera singer? Yeah, retired opera singer. her name is Rowena Drake, played by Kelly Riley. She, her daughter, like, uh, died last year under mysterious, possibly suicidal circumstances. You need to come and see as she tries to, as this, you know, this this psychic uh, Joyce. She, as she tries to connect uh, Rowena with her daughter, and maybe you can uh, prove if she is a fraud or not. Because this uh, Joyce Reynolds has become a big deal. She is played by Michelle Yeoh. And for for some reason that that is enough to like, you know, get Poro out and he goes to this palazzo on which it it takes place on Halloween. Correct me if I'm wrong, Fred, because it's adapted from the uh, it's adapted from the Agatha Christie movie uh, Halloween party. Uh, and so you see a little, there's a lot of uh, little kids in the background dressed up and stuff like that. But we eventually kind of focus on the main characters and, uh, Perot, uh, you know, you know, eventually kind of like initially kind of outs, uh, Reynolds as a fraud when he shows up here and, you know, reveals that like, Hey, there's a couple other people here that are actually working for her to try and like make all this happen. Uh, there's a, one, one assistant's name is, uh, uh, Desdemona played by Emma Laird and, uh, and, and, and another one, uh, played his, his name is, uh, Nicholas Holland, he's played by a guy named Ali Khan, and uh, they are they're, they're kind of outed, but then you know in kind of the aftermath of that, uh, Reynolds just ends up dying. She uh, gets thrown out a window and paled on this thing, and Perot says, "All right, I got to do the Hercule Pro thing: lock the doors and interview everyone." Uh, but I, sh- I should note, you know, we get uh, the movie, most notably, you know. It's called a haunting in Venice. It has a more haunting vibe. And whether that be with the setting or the score or the the, the look of this, uh, or, or just like the, the lighting, like it is, he's going for somewhat of a different kind of vibe. And I don't even know if I want to go so far as to call it a horror movie, but some people were kind of like, you know, speculating that was what it was going to be. And Fred, I know that you are uh, you're you're notably not a horror guy. That's not the kind of those aren't the kind of movies that you ever join us for. But I'm going to first ask you, because throughout this movie, Perot, like he starts seeing visions, seeing ghosts. And he's already here to kind of try and disprove a medium. And he's starting to kind of question his own reality from a lot of this movie. So before we talk about like whether or not this should even qualify as a horror film, Fred, I want to know, are you a ghost guy? You have feelings about ghosts, whether it be movies about the supernatural or are you a person that believes in ghosts at all? Because there are people that are, you know, seemingly, you know, uh, similarly minded to you and me that see the world the same way. But like every now and then you might just meet someone that like you think is just a regular person, but they're like, you know, they're super, super into ghosts. And it's like, who am I to say you're wrong? I, I can't prove it one way or the other. Do you have any kind of feelings in general on ghosts and culture or if that's a thing you're into just like, you know, thinking about the supernatural and whether it exists? Or are you pretty agnostic about that?
1: So I wouldn't go that far that I would say that I'm a spiritualist or that I necessarily believe in the existence of ghosts, but I am a pretty firm believer that we don't know everything and that it's always good to maintain an open mind. And a character like Poirot is obviously ill-suited for that because he's built his entire career on facts, on evidence, on the things that are right in front of him that he can actually observe. So this whole idea that there is actually a psychic out there who might really be able to communicate with the dead, or who can tap into the supernatural, that is genuinely frightening to him. And I think a believable reason for why he might be able to come out of retirement, because he has such absolute feelings about that, that obviously he would want to disprove somebody who claims to be able to do that as a fraud. Mm. So I found that to be a pretty interesting hook, especially because we're going to have a discussion, of course, about the metaphorical nature of ghosts and Poirot being haunted by his own ghosts. And... Other characters also having these demons from their past that come back to haunt them on this particular night.
0: Yeah, and uh, so I, I, that's that's what I would say. It's like it's almost more of like to the extent it's it's its own genre. I think it's more squarely like a supernatural. Uh, I don't even want to say supernatural because the movie doesn't necessarily take a stance on that. But it, I mean, it it goes for that kind of like you know, I don't even want to call it a spooky vibe because I was never scared during this movie. And I don't know, I don't even necessarily mean that as like a a critique at all, because I do think it like, you know, I was able to like, you know, kind of lock in with it at a certain point, regardless of whether or not I was ever, you know, expecting to or uh, thought I might be experiencing a jump scare. That was never really the case, but it, it definitely goes for like just a more like, you know, I want to say like, you know, slower, contemplative, reflective vibe with like a dash of like you know the supernatural and i think that's like a different a a very different feeling for this movie and i think it's cool that like you know on the third of like you know the series it was you know like he he went for something completely different even though he somehow got this movie made despite the fact that death of the nile didn't make a lot of money ron is like all right i'm gonna take advantage of this and try something different which if nothing else i do respect Uh, even if like my my overall feelings on the movie are mixed it's like it was i think it was smart of him to be like I don't want to do the same thing again. So I'm curious, Fred, we, we we talked a little bit last week as we were starting to see some of the reviews from when this came out and you were like, you were liking some of what you were seeing and you were kind of excited about that. So I'm wondering like, what you were hoping to get out of it and what you were excited for when you started seeing those reviews because some people had just kind of been like projecting it to be some kind of horror movie. And again, as we've talked about, that's not really your thing. So I'm wondering uh, what made this movie potentially appealing to you based on the early word and ultimately, did you find it satisfying?
1: So I thought the marketing for this was pretty clever, because when Mm. the first preview came out, it actually didn't even show Proro for the first minute or so. It was really good about setting up the vibes, so to speak, (laughs) that it's going to be in Venice at night, it's Halloween, it's kind of a ghost story, there are some spooky things going on, and you're right, I'm not necessarily a fan of genuine horror. I should really say modern-day horror, Mm. because there are some minor inspirations here from 1970s horror movies something along the lines of the omen maybe or rosemary's baby where you don't necessarily have like straight up like gore and scary horror but this kind of unease that's always underneath the surface that something might be seriously wrong um i've never seen this movie but i would imagine brana took some inspiration from a movie that came out in the 1970s called don't look now with Mm -hmm. Donald Sutherland, that's also set in Venice, actually. Um, And it's incidentally also, I believe, about uh, a child dying and the parents being haunted. It's a good
0: point. I have seen Dirtland now, and I honestly didn't think about it until you just mentioned it.
1: Yeah, and, and that's kind of what I thought was interesting as far as the setting is concerned, because Venice is so often used in movies as this romantic getaway destination. A few years ago, we discussed From Russia with Love on this part, and it just kind of ends with that famous shot of Tatiana and Bond being in the gondola and they're all happy together after they've just survived Spectre. But the reality is that Venice, just based on its, not too, its fate in the not too distant future, that'll eventually sink underneath uh, the sea forever. I think that makes it kind of a very somber and haunting setting, right? Because it is a graveyard just waiting to happen in a sense and history just disappearing in front of our eyes. So I was very intrigued by what he would make out of that setting. And I think the trailer did a really good job of kind of selling the location for the kind of movie he wanted to make here.
0: There's all sorts of synergy going on here, because we talked about Belfast in addition to the last Piranha movie, but like the last movie I think we did a podcast on was Mission Impossible, uh, Dead Reckoning Part One, which had a a very uh, long Venice sequence that ended in Mm -hmm. something pretty somber and tragic.
1: (laughs) Mm. Yeah, so I do think that it was very smart to make this movie a little bit more contained, a bit more economical, because I think my biggest criticism of Death on the Nile is that it just didn't look especially good sometimes. Oh, you mean they didn't film
0: in Egypt, Fred? You don't think they actually filmed in Egypt?
1: (laughs) Well, I actually wouldn't be surprised if they took a few cutscenes from Assassin's Creed Origins, which is set in ancient (laughs) Egypt, and used those as their establishing shots of the pyramid and the Nile. Hmm. So that was something that did bother me. Some of those establishing shots in that movie were so clearly CGI that it just kind of took me out of the setting.
0: Yeah, I mean, and it I was, think- bad. yeah, the, the, especially some of the water scenes in that one were just like, this is yeah. not like anything that I could ever buy as being in the Middle East. And that movie actually did end up filming exclusively in England, even though it was supposed to film mm-hmm. in Morocco, apparently. But like, hey, they actually did some stuff on location for a Haunting in Venice on top of doing like London Soundstage stuff. So credit to them.
1: Yeah, and you can tell. It looks a lot nicer. Like Even some of the first establishing shots really kind of sell you on the setting, sell you on the atmosphere. Like It's very clear that this is going to be a very different kind of movie than what Brana did with Murder on the Orient Express and Death on the Nile. Mm. And I also really enjoy Agatha Christie when she does things that are confined to a single location where mm. you have a group of people kind of in the same room together. One of them is a murderer, And you need to figure out who is actually responsible because people keep on dying. The most Mm -hmm. famous example of that being And Then There Were None, uh, where you have 10 people on an island and people just keep getting killed off until there are only a few of them left. And they keep getting more and more scared because the killer has to be one of them and they don't know who it is. So I think that's a really interesting type of story for Brana to explore here because that's, again, not really what the first two movies were.
0: One thing I liked about the, I, I was going back and like trying to refresh myself. I didn't have time to go watch either of the first two, but like I read, I, re, I always read my letterbox reviews and, and maybe, and you're, I think yours of the first couple. And like, I didn't think they necessarily got inside Perot's head as well in the first one as they could have just, and it, I didn't really feel like I had as much context as I should have for like how he reacted to some of those characters at the end. But I think that was one of the things I did kind of a, a, at least appreciate in the second one is like fraught as that one is to think of, even think about now, especially in light of the Russell Brand stuff that came out last week. I was like, Oh yeah. Uh, yeah. I, and I was like, I, I actually remembered liking like how they, you know, utilized Perot's past and they like did, had these war flashbacks and I thought it tied in well to like some of the decisions he had to make later on. So here it seems like you also f- appreciated the way in which like uh, Branham managed to like, you know, get inside Perot's head a little more and uh, examine his trauma even more. And it seems like that's something that probably actually kind of worked for you about this
1: one. Yeah. And it's clearly the aspect of Poirot that he finds most interesting Mm -hmm. because Agatha Christie never really focused on that all that much. She was really more intrigued by having huge groups of characters showing up in the first couple of pages and then Poirot kind of interrogates each of them and you find out more about their past and their contribution to whatever the crime was. I mean, Mm -hmm. Death on the Nile had like a really big cast and in fact they cut out several characters from the book Mm -hmm. um, just to make an adaptation out of that so in the book the group of people on that boat on the Nile is even bigger and what I really liked about this one is first of all the cast is smaller which significantly helps uh, with exploring each of them a little bit more in detail but also um, Kenneth Branagh is a director who is primarily known for Shakespeare so it makes a lot of sense that he'd be really interested in these conflicted protagonists with complicated pasts that inform his present day actions, where he is somebody who has basically built his entire life on death. I mean, that's what he made a career out of. If people didn't get murdered, pro Perot wouldn't be a successful detective. He wouldn't be famous. He wouldn't have been able to live this lavish lifestyle that he has become accustomed to. So there's a very real cost to his success in the sense that people need to die for it to happen. And when you've done that for several decades, I do think that that starts to pile up. So I do think it makes a lot of sense that somebody like that who's experienced all of that suffering has seen really the pits of what mankind is capable of, that somebody like that would retire to a historical city that's renowned for its beauty and kind of just sit out his last few days without going back to solving crimes.
0: Yeah, I think they, I think, just the progression of him throughout these movies they've like progressively like you know like you said it, it, they progressively toned down the uh the mustache twirling goofy nature of him as compared to like kind of what he was at the start of this whole thing such that it makes a little more sense that he might uh, come to this point i mean i i knew he didn't exactly end death on the nile in the best spot but i also no. knew that like it seemed like there was a, supposed to be a good amount of time that it, i think there's supposed to be like a 10-year gap right uh Between this and death, the events of death on the Nile, I saw that somewhere. I think I don't remember if I picked up on that in the movie. So it's like I'm like, wait, am I supposed to think that he like this is where he is at as a result of the events of that movie, or did the life just continue to beat him down over the next ten years? I I just didn't remember. I don't remember if they said how long he'd been chilling in Venice like that. But in any event, they they get him to they. Tina Fey is able to get him out of his shell. By like convincing him, he needs to just do something, I guess, and that's someone someone from his past that he's willing to like at least hear out. And she gets him to go to this event for this uh at this palazzo to like possibly sniff out what is going on with this medium and it's 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 or psychic and it's not exactly and uh, it's not exactly a line of work that he has uh, very much respect for and uh, he's very kind of quick to disarm it. But on top of you know maybe enjoying like how they got in Perot's head. What did you what did you ultimately think about like you know how this movie kind of kicks off cuz you know I was actually like I don't know why I was actually really bored for like the first, like 45 minutes when the, when the action kicks in into another gear in the second half of the movie was when it really kind of clicked in for me. But the one thing I will say about like this first chunk of the movie is that like, it was kind of fun seeing Michelle Yeoh get to be kind of goofy in a way that she even, she wasn't even necessarily in everything everywhere at once as goofy as that movie is. She is the straight woman in that movie for a lot of it. Uh, and here it's just like, they just let her go all like kind of kooky. What did you think about like just how they got from where they opened this movie with Perot? to when he ultimately locks those doors again. And what did you think of like that section of the film and how it kind of brought the characters together? Because it was really slow for me at times, like I said, and I was maybe not feeling it so much, but I at least enjoyed watching Michelle Yeoh do her thing.
1: So I do appreciate, by the way, that they totally counter-steered in the opposite direction with the casting, where they had a whole bunch of controversial people in Death on the Nile. Here they get like one of the most universally beloved actresses uh, of her generation to play a major part. So I think that was smart. It kind of... Uh... Move some of the uh, stink of scandal away from the franchise. So it's good that they got her to do this. (laughs) Um, I agree with you in the sense that the build up was slow, yes. Um, Once he arrives at the party, there's a whole bunch of exposition about the history of the house, uh, the history of Rowena and what happened with her daughter. We meet a whole bunch of the characters. And I know that you need to establish them, obviously, because they're all going to become relevant later. But I do think there is a better way to do that. Once you have your dead body and he starts interrogating people, hmm. I do think a lot of that introductory stuff was a little bit too front-loaded in this movie. And as a result, like you said, it took a while for the action to really get rolling. Yeah, we I didn't see- mind it too much because I like. Again, I did like the atmosphere. I liked the idea that this house was essentially cursed because you had a whole bunch of children who were locked in the building during the plague and were just left to die which is just an incredibly Darkly. dreadful image to have in mm-hmm. your head the entire time. So I like this idea that that's kind of w- what the location was and why it might be possible for it to actually be genuinely haunted. Mm-hmm. But yes, I agree. The pacing did feel a little off in that first half. It's
0: it, it just felt very laborious in how it got to like explaining why all these people were here. Um, uh-huh. The uh, Rowena's late daughter, is her name was Alicia, and she was apparently like, you know, engaged to marry this guy uh named maxime he's played by kyle allen who i wasn't maybe i've seen him in something but i wasn't really familiar with him in the, moment. the West
1: Side story apparently
0: I, i'm seeing that now i could not tell you what he was but like he is there and it's like all of a sudden like maybe he was gonna like come back to try and win her back or something and it was right then that she died and now he might have some other girlfriend but now he's back but it also seems like the doctor has some kind of beef with him but i'm not exactly sure why. And the doctor, uh, uh, his name is, uh, Jordan's doctor, his name is Dr. Leslie Farmer. He is, like, also, at the same time, being, like, haunted by some war flashbacks of his own. And there's just, like, there's just a lot they try and cram in there. And, like, I'm having trouble, like, wait. at a certain point, it's like, I think you're just supposed to understand that Leslie is very, like, just, is just, he's just, through his own trauma, he is just acting out. But, like, at a certain point, he tries to beat up Maxime. And I'm like, wait, did I, like did i miss something like what is going on with these two like yeah. i i, I it, it was hard to track at times and it's like and i think you're right you know, like i mean in a certain way like i think i mean i don't even know if ha- i i'm not even sure the cast is that much smaller than the others it's just the names aren't quite as big at a certain point there's like a cutoff where there's people are a little more unknowns camille, camille cotton plays the um the housekeeper uh olga um, uh, who, who's an actress that i also like and uh is is at least recognizable to me but maybe not to like wide audiences. Uh so it's like I it's just not super deep, especially after Michelle Yell uh-huh. Yo exits out. And uh and, and that that's that's all fine. Though I wonder it's like, you know, is is maybe one of the benefits of just like having like big names, you know. That it's a little bit of a shorthand for kind of getting to know these people. It certainly wasn't the last one where we're just like it just so happened the Army Hammer is doing a bunch of like fucked up shit the whole movie when we were already just like you know, like bracing ourselves for whatever it was going to be, given what we knew about him in real life. But I think I I think there is something to that, and that's maybe one of the benefits of casting big. I think I heard Nolan talked about that a little bit too. When he talk talking about Oppenheimer, it's like, look, it's a shorthand, like you know if if and people already have these relationships with these people, and this is what it is, as much as it and like not that like movies should just pigeonhole like people that they cast and typecast them or whatever. And like I like seeing people play against type. But maybe that's one benefit where it's like when you don't know like I I this, this Kyle Allen guy, no idea who he is. That could have easily been another more recognizable star. I'm not even I don't even want to dock him too many points for it not being that because I like it if you try and like, you know, discover someone new but at the same time i just had a hard time getting a handle on that dude because they weren't so efficient with all this exposition in the first half of the movie and that might just have been like one thing that that made it so i just was like i was zoning out and not really totally with it until like i said things kicked into another in another gear later on
1: yeah on the other hand i will say i appreciate i always appreciate actors playing against type a little bit i mean i would say this is not your typical jamie Dorman kind of role and like Dakota Johnson, he's done a really good job, I think, diversifying his portfolio ever since uh, he got stuck playing the Christian Gray character in 50 yeah. Shades of Gray. He really because... went the other way
0: with a like Barb and Star go to Vista Omar. He's awesome in that.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, I, I did watch that. Yeah. That was. That, that was hilarious It's yeah, hilarious I, in that movie was, I, yeah I, I watched it after i watched it after it showed up in a couple of your guys' uh top 10 lists at the end of the year i really mm-hmm. didn't have that on my radar at all and then i really had a good time with it
0: mm-hmm. um, actually that was a 2021 movie i think actually i that I think about it but but i mean uh yeah no that, that that one was a lot of fun and then i mean everyone and then all of a sudden he's in like something prestigious like belfast and now he's here and he's just gonna you know gonna make, meet up with this dude kenneth brana and just like play play a disturbed doctor sure go for it man
1: Yeah, no, I did appreciate that. I I will say, on the other hand, you have Kelly Riley as the former opera singer, Rowena. So first of all, I didn't realize she was British, which was kind of an interesting revelation. No, I did
0: not know that either. Um,
1: Yeah, because I I feel like most people know her from Yellowstone, right? And that's about the most American role (laughs) you could possibly imagine. I do think, and maybe it's because I've never seen the Fifty Shades of Grey movies, and it's a little unfair to her. I have seen several seasons of Yellowstone, so... It's just such a like such a recognizable p- performance that she gives in that show that it's really hard to dissociate her from that role. Mm. So I, I'm not necessarily sure that I bought her as the grieving mother in this, and I don't know if that's necessarily a fault of the performance. She's a British lady and that's more... too good. At,
0: she's a British lady that's too good at being an American for you to buy her as a British lady.
1: <laughs> well, which presumably makes her a really good actress in that sense. But then on the <laughs> other hand, it's a little hard to buy in when she plays a totally different kind of role. Right. Um, but, but like i said gen- generally speaking and it's the same thing with michelle yo i mean playing a psychic who goes totally batshit during a seance kind of like you would expect eva green to do and penny dreadful not really something that you typically associate with her either so it is kind of nice that Brana got a couple of people here to kind of go against the grain of what it is they're typically known for
0: no yeah definitely and, and e- e- even in moments where i'm not like totally feeling the plot as much here yeah, I I I there wasn't a moment where there were really weren't that many moments here. And like I think the Tina Fey performance is kind of divisive. And I get why people might struggle a little bit with her in a role like that when they're so used to seeing her when they're so used to seeing her in other stuff. Speaking of someone that people are used to seeing in other stuff. I've heard I've heard more people bumping up against that than I have against like the Kelly Riley performance. And I'm like, yeah, I get it, but I also for what that character is there to do, there's not like some other actress where I'm like, Yeah, that person is exactly who I would have seen in that role. It's it's just what it is. But aside from that, and I, I agree, it's just odd to see Tina Fey in something like like this where like w- w- when she has acted in movies it's almost always been uh it's almost always been com- straight comedy so uh yeah it's a, it's it was a little disorienting but I, there was not that many other any other moments really where i was just like yeah i don't i i, I don't buy what this person's putting here it might have just been like all right come on guys like get to the point let's get a move on it and and you know it, w- it was what it was but like uh just speaking more uh i, I want to take i want to take a step back for a second for the performance let me quickly asked, jump in yeah yeah
1: because go. you did mention tina fey i just wanted to say mm-hmm. one thing i did appreciate her chemistry with because there was a real danger for this movie to just become overwhelmingly somber and depressing. And there mm-hmm. were some like nice lighter moments between the two of them that I thought worked pretty well. I mean, obviously this was never going to be a laugh out loud funny movie, but there were a couple of scenes where I chuckled when she kind of put him in his place. And you can see that he kind of became his old self again when she provokes him into becoming self-aggrandizing again and showing off a little bit. Like when she says, oh, you know, I decided to get the most brilliant person to investigate the psychic, but I really couldn't figure it out. So I decided to come to the second most brilliant that I know, mm-hmm. which is Perot, obviously. So, you know, there were those like nice moments there where occasionally you needed a bit of a lighter touch. And I think they were able to provide that. So I, I did appreciate her in that sense. Uh,
0: yeah, so like, you have her offering like, commentary of that nature and usually if like at least over half of the lines that she has in the movie are they kind of just there to are, are, are just kind of there to you know at times like generate a laugh here and there and then on top of that you have Michelle Yeoh doing the really goofy thing uh what what did you think about like more broadly beyond just like you know Perot being like introspective and in, uh dealing with his own trauma what did you think of like Kenneth Branagh the filmmaker here and what he did to just kind of create something that felt different from those other movies and I, I kind of went through it when I like when when I opened the podcast and you know, talked about whether it be, you know the, uh just the set design his lighting the how he sh- where he puts the camera or you know anything like that i think it's any com- combination of things can kind of contribute to make can kind of come together to make this something that was not just like whatever you want to call those first two movies it felt like something different and i'm wondering were there any moments in this movie or things that you kind of picked up on that he did that was like oh here he's doing something to really try and set himself apart from the last two movies that he did in this franchise
1: yeah, I do, I do think that there was just something a lot more organic about the way this was shot, and I know a lot of people pointed out that it takes a lot of inspiration from Orson Welles, no, not Orson Welles, sorry, The Third Man, Yeah, uh, which came out in the late 1940s, which basically did to Vienna what Branagh's doing to Venice here, a lot of Dutch angles, and you kind of have this, like, spooky atmosphere of, like, a haunted protagonists, like, starting to question his own sanity and i i do appreciate the ability to make a horror movie that doesn't necessarily rely on cheap spectacle mm. and i think there was a very good ability here even with that scene where he's in the bathroom and the water isn't working properly anymore mm-hmm. and then all of a sudden it starts working again you really and start to the girl, question... and then there's the girl
0: the girl behind him
1: Exactly. And you really start to question. This is obviously a franchise, again, that's detective fiction. So you're not really used to the supernatural showing up here. But they do a really good job in those scenes to make you question your own sanity. And you really start to entertain the possibility. Are they really going beyond facts here? And are we really going to have an encounter with the spiritual world? And I was really hoping they wouldn't, because obviously that would have gone into gone entirely against what I really want these movies to be about. I want there to be logical answers. I want the movie to be able to explain itself uh, without having to resort to ghosts. (laughs) But just the fact that they were able to string me on, string me along for a long time, and that you have these scenes where, again, the water comes out of the faucet, then it doesn't come out. Is that because it's an old building and the pipes aren't working properly? Is it because there's a storm going on? Or is it because there's really something supernatural in this house? And I think they did a really good job to keep entertaining that possibility for, yeah, almost 90 minutes without me really growing tired of it.
0: Yeah, I uh, I would agree with that. I'm not even sure if I necessarily even got invested in exploring whether or not it actually was haunted. Like, it just, I think something in the back of my mind just kind of let me think, like, I don't think they're actually going to go there with this. But, like, I didn't get tired no. of them necessarily flirting with it, and it didn't feel like it was... uh it, it never came across feeling like a cheap trick or like a, something that, like they're beating any kind of dead horse, even though they get kind of got going back there with whatever it was he was seeing or whatever they, they intimate other characters are hearing voices and stuff like that. It's like they, they spend a lot of time on that stuff, but it, it didn't feel it really didn't feel perfunctory or like they were just kind of throwing stuff out there just to like check a box on like, oh, we did a spooky thing. You know, I think he's, he, he had a specific mood he wanted to set and a look he wanted to have. And I think, I think, I think Brana accomplished that. Like, even if I, as I'm saying, like at parts, I was bored, it just felt more cohesive and tight than the other ones did with the other ones. it is just, they might've had moments in isolation where they were fun. And that you know, at at the same time, it, it those just never really felt as like like as singularly focused in a way that allowed you to stay as easily engaged as I did in this one. Once the plot picked up a little
1: bit, yeah, yeah. And I will and I will say the other thing is, you get the sense that Brana took this one, I guess, more seriously as a piece of art, almost. In some of his other mm-hmm. movies, I think a problem. So I will say, I think Brana gets a lot of flack because people consider him a bit of a shill who supplements his more artistic endeavors with really crappy Hollywood fare. Mm -hmm. I don't think anybody really likes the first Thor movie all that much. In my mind, it's probably, the I don't know if it's necessarily the single weakest one of the first phase of uh, the MCU, but it's pretty close to the bottom. And then, of course, I think Disney did him a real solid by releasing Artemis Fowl just on Disney Plus and Mm -hmm. not giving it a theatrical release because if they had, I think that would have been a bit of an embarrassment for him that it would have been hard to recover from, but they yeah. just buried it all on the streaming platform. Artemis Fowl is the kind of movie that nobody really remembers him for, and it's not something like uh, Cats, for example, that's going to destroy his director's its director's career for the foreseeable future. Um, mm. I think Brana was really kind of able to maintain a level of seriousness that I think some people don't like to attribute to him because they don't necessarily like what he does with his time. But I do think he is very sincere about turning these Agatha Christie books into interesting movies. And I really think that he kind of made more even of an effort here to win more people over. He also didn't use his typical composer, Patrick Doyle. He went with Hildur Guðnadóttir who is very well known for composing the score for Joker. She uh, did the score for Tar last year, Women Talking. So that's the kind of composer you get when you're trying to aim for something different and also if you're looking to add more prestige.
0: So So he changed a lot of things around it uh, 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 like changed a lot of the stuff that, uh, to, to, to accompany the look and feel of this movie and make that something distinct from the other two. Though I think it is telling that we've been doing this for over 30 minutes now and we've talked very little about the mystery itself and yeah. I mean I think that speaks to everything else that he did pretty well that you and I seem generally p- fairly positive on this and maybe weren't as taken with the mystery. I don't know about you but like if you recall one of my things that like was kind of stuck in my craw a little bit for the first two movies was like I didn't necessarily like how the movie's resolved. And I don't even know if I can blame Brona for that. Maybe he you only want to change so much of the source material, though I understand this might be a looser adaptation than the first two. But at the same time, I was just like, I didn't love how, again, this might just be the nature of how the Perot stories go. I didn't like how we just kind of solved it by like all of a sudden, like delivering a speech to the audience that brings in evidence that we weren't ever shown. You know, I, I guess I'm putting my lawyer hat on a little bit where it's like, you know, I want to actually like, you know, be able to come to my own verdict and figure it out based on the evidence presented to me. And it's like, I never had a shot here. He's just like all of a sudden, like brings in some other things. And there might have been a little bit in that here with like some of the plant stuff that comes up in the later part of this uh-huh. movie um, without necessarily spoiling the who done it of it all. It's just like there's a little bit of that, but it didn't bother me as much in the moment. And I'm not sure why. But at the same, so I'm giving it a little bit of credit for that. But at the same time, like the actual like mystery of what happened might be like the least interesting part to like think about in this movie. If that if that makes sense,
1: I'll give you that. Although my thing was I had the I don't know if you want to call it misfortune, but that was just how it played out. Mm -hmm. I already knew the resolutions for both Murder on the Orient Express Mm -hmm. and Death on the Nile in advance. Okay, Murder on the Orient Express because it's one of the most famous endings in literary Mm -hmm. history Mm that everyone did it. And Death on the because I listened to it on audiobook. Uh, Kenneth Branagh reads that one, by the way. Highly recommend. Hmm. Uh, so this was the first time I've gone into one of those without knowing who actually committed the murder. and Okay, how so yeah. So you're was- just
0: naturally more invested by comparison. Yeah.
1: Yeah, I was kind of curious if I would like have a different experience with this movie because of that. And It was kind of nice because there were a few times where there's a, a cop like right at the edge of the table in one scene. And I'm like, ah, obviously that cup is going to fall at some point because it's that close Mm -hmm. to the edge of the table and it's going to reveal something super important. And then that happens. There Mm -hmm. is a scene where a character mentions that the honey tastes weird, that it's not real wildflower honey. Mm -hmm. Um, And as you had already mentioned, there was a scene where they talk about uh, the garden and how she had ripped up all the plants and replaced it. So, There were a couple of moments where I'm like, oh, okay, so this is coming back now uh, when he lays out all of the evidence. You're right, some of the stuff, he just kind of of seems to pull out of his ass, as he usually does, and that's something that Agatha Christie was, I wouldn't say necessarily guilty of, but she had this weird penchant where there was just so much extraneous stuff going on that Poirot almost accidentally solved one or two additional crimes, in (laughs) addition to the main one uh, that he was investigating. So if you want to make a more coherent movie, you have to kind of cut those out. And I think one of the results of that is that you usually end up with a bit of a a climactic scene where he lays out all the evidence where you don't necessarily know how he reached some of those conclusions. Hmm. So I guess it's a bit of a trade-off. You can make a longer movie where you kind of get all of that, or you just have to accept some of the shortcuts that he makes mentally that we might not necessarily be privy to.
0: Right. No, I mean that makes sense and i i you know again i th- I think they i think they just kind of like pulled it off in a more and again and i don't think i i, I mean i think i I, th- I think it i i think at the i think at the end of um murder on the Orange express i think like i i've forgotten the ending until i did it i was like because mm-hmm. i i'd never seen the original so then when it's the when it's revealed i was like Oh yeah. So it caught me off guard, but I was like, I did know this. I just forgot I knew this. Uh Death on the Nile, I didn't know. And this one I didn't know, but like this one I it, it, however however it was they pulled it off, it was just kind of like there there were a lot of twists at the end of this, which we can talk about in a minute. But but at the same time, I think he, he just did it in a more uh he did it in a slicker way, I suppose that uh that, that just kind of like still tracked in my head and I and, and I and I did appreciate that. Uh, I'm trying to think a couple of the performances I wanted to ask you about, but I figured I'd just hold off on that to, to a, a spoiler section. Did, did, you, did you have any other non spoiler thoughts you wanted to convey for Because I kind of just want to talk about the ending, uh, before I before it uh, before I kind of touch on any other odds and ends.
1: No, I think we laid it out pretty well, actually. Yeah,
0: so I think uh, you know, for anyone that hasn't already seen it, and it's like, and for whatever reason, because I think I'm, I'm it's going to come out next week, so I mean, it'll still be in theaters by that point because we're just in the middle of a couple of slow weeks for so even if this doesn't really kill it at the box office it's still going to be in theaters by the time people listen to this if you're like Eh, about it and you like were nice enough to listen to us. hey, I, I think it's worth giving a shot if you were eh because you didn't like the first two, because this is something that's definitely a different look and feel, as we've already mentioned several times. And just not if, if you're just worried that, like, hey, those first two are kind of the same z's, uh, this this certainly is something kind of different and might appeal to you, especially if you're someone that, like, you know, likes to dabble in like the horror and supernatural t- types of pop culture. But at the same time, if you're just like, I'm not a straight horror guy, that's not what this is either. And obviously, you know, uh as we already talked about, like Fred. It, it, fred jibed with it okay even if like he's not a horrid guy generally uh so you know recommend everyone you know give this one a shot it's cool that he somehow made this get got this get made somehow got this made don't know if it's going to make enough money to get to get him a fourth one but you know whatever i'll, I'll I, I Kenneth Branagh seems like an okay guy he can keep doing his thing as far as i'm concerned if we want to support him so we're gonna we're, we're gonna kind of jump in uh talk about the spoilers now and fred you know there's like a couple of different like you know twists and turns that jump up here. I don't I don't know if there's anywhere you would want to start, but like I I, th- I thought it was a little interesting how they he tries to do a like a you know a, a pull the rug out from under you thing with the Tina Fey character and the security guard char- character and before he even like gets to the other big reveals. Did you and I I honestly don't even know if that was really necessary actually because it was kind of like. Look, they'd already established that the Reynolds character was like a bit of a fraud, uh, in with, with those other people. And then it turns out, oh no, like th- th- I guess it's like they knew that and they brought it here because if Perot couldn't solve it, then that would be somehow better material for her next book than just like writing an actual murder mystery. And it seemed like it was a it, it was a lot of like it was a lot of wasted motion just to like get to that revelation that I don't know if there really was a big payoff in the end for it. Did you have any feelings on like them taking that, making that decision with like just to have a different plot turn?
1: I do think it kind of does pay off an interesting line that is said early in the movie. And I actually thought that was a very profound line and it was Mm -hmm. almost a bit of a throwaway where uh, he says that he needs to interview Tina Fey's character, of course, because she was there as well. Mm. And then she says, what, why, why would you suspect me? Like, I'm one of your oldest and best friends. And then mm. he responds, well, every that's, I'm sure, what uh, every murderer's best friend said before they found oh, out it was a murderer. Okay. Yeah. Um, and I do think it's kind of interesting that she kind of just assumes that he trusts her uh, when he really, in that situation, can't afford to trust anyone. <laughs> and then, of course, we do find out at the end that he had very strong reasons for distrusting her because she ends up betraying him because... Fame and fortune is ultimately more important to her than preserving that friendship, Mm. and I also think it's a bit of an interesting commentary on Agatha Christie herself, because obviously she made a lot of money off of this poor old character, and I mean obviously she wasn't really friends with him, so (laughs) there isn't really like a moral sort of aspect. it, it,
0: it. It is it is in some ways like I and again I've never read Halloween Party, but like this character is obviously somewhat of a stand-in for her, which is kind of interesting because that kind of character hasn't existed. In this le- I mean, there have been depictions of Agatha Christie in pop culture in, at, at many various points, but like hasn't really been anything like that in the Brana movies.
1: Yeah, and I think you can even extrapolate more out of that because I always think that our current generation has a bit of a ghoulish relationship with true crime and mm-hmm. writing about murders and getting a little bit too much enjoyment out of reading about this kind of stuff. Did you Obviously, watch a new? Did you watch a new
0: season of Black Mirror? Uh,
1: no, actually, I, I watched the first few seasons, but I haven't really caught oh. up
0: recently. There, the, I've only watched the first three of like the five of the new episode, new season. But like, there was an episode in this one, in the new season of Black Mirror, that like comments on that exact thing you're talking about, like how our generation treats this stuff, and it was actually like really interesting. I don't know if it was one of the better reviewed ones, but I actually really liked it. So just letting you know, there's like some other interesting commentary out there about that that kind of thing. But your point is well taken in the context of this movie too.
1: Yeah, which again, I'm not even sure that's necessarily intentional, but I do mm-hmm. think it just kind of raises the point like she essentially makes profit off of people dying and following him uh, trying to solve these murders. Mm-hmm. So I do think that there is certainly a bit of conflict there in terms of even before we find out that she betrayed him and like brought him there intentionally uh, for her own reasons, like she's again made a big career out of his success in the first place so I do think it kind of underpins some of the things that we've seen with the two of them previously even though I do agree that in the moment it doesn't really feel like a major reveal because obviously there's more stuff to come
0: sure sure um
1: yeah so like
0: we we, we, we have that kind of like you know uh, um we ha- we, we, we have we have that revelation there but then he kind of moves on and we we end we, we end up like in I mean and honestly, I think I'm, I'm, I might have even like, in in some ways, jumped ahead a little bit because you know. It, but like, I'm f- happy to have not like spoiled like with the other deaths. But like, at, at some point, we all of a sudden are. At some point, after that fight that I mentioned earlier between uh, between Doctor Le- uh, Doctor Leslie Farrier and and, uh, and and Maxime, they, they they lock the doctor up in a room. They come back later, and the and, and the doctor is just dead. And uh, so 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 you have that. And I and I forgot to mention there was an attempt made on Perot's life like earlier in the movie too. Uh, and I, I just totally forgot about that. That's not really a spoiler because it like happened so early. It's just, uh, there's a lot of, I don't know that, that first half of the movie, it just, it, it just it just, it didn't stick with me. because well, I didn't like it, but in in any event, like pros already have has, has that on his mind as he's investigating. But then all of a sudden, Hey, there's this other guy that died. Perot had the only key to the room. And so it's like, he has to solve that murder. And like you talked about, there's like all these side murders, like within the, and I guess that's not totally dissimilar from death on the Nile, but these other things are popping up throughout the course of the investigation. And on, so on top of like the doctor ending up dead, uh, like, like, he ends up like putting together the thing that kind of happens off screen is that like, you know, he, he ends up putting together that Rowena incidentally, basically like uh, incidentally killed Alicia because she could not like stand that. She was about to lose her daughter who like she cared about more than anyone in the world. She didn't want to lose him to this other guy she was dating. So she just tried to like keep her a certain level of sick to take care of her. Uh, And then on, and then did not like, did not loop Olga Olga in on this. he gives her way too much of this tainted medicine and, yeah. So Perot puts all of that together. some of it a little too off screen for my taste, typically. But like I said, didn't bother me as much. Then you have this other thing with the doctor dying over there that like he kind of encounters first before he like puts it all together. Still, it, again, I, the reasons that like I think this movie works are like not really for this. Like it felt like a lot happening at once. And I just don't know if like the way these movies tie together is really my thing. I just think I found like other stuff to like in this movie. So I didn't like, I didn't get caught up on that quite as much as I might have. Otherwise If the rest of the movie was not as well done. How did you ultimately feel about how they kind of like revealed the rest of this mystery, Fred? Did it, did it, did it track for you better than it did for me? Or did it feel like they were just throwing a bunch of stuff against the wall pretty quickly?
1: I will say I was pretty relieved that they didn't actually go the supernatural route because mm. I, I, th- yeah. I mean we've talked about this before. You, you said that you didn't necessarily think they were going to go that route. But I was concerned for a while that maybe just maybe they would in some ways tie it together that way. That Hmm. there is an actual spirit haunting the place. I thought it was at least a possibility and I'm glad that they didn't do that. Uh, I will say the resolution did feel a little underwhelming compared to some of the other pro-roll stories that I'm familiar with. Um, Hmm. Just because, and this is the tricky thing, right? Agatha Christie came up With a lot of these detective murder mystery stereotypes Mm. and this idea of a mother sort of poisoning her own child because she's afraid of losing her that's a pretty familiar trope but is it a familiar trope because she came up with it and now we're kind of seeing the original being done for the big screen so i don't know if i can necessarily accuse brana of sort of using an unoriginal idea because maybe he is in fact just adapting the original idea in the first place Mm. um Having said that, I don't know. I, I will say I was pretty surprised when Jamie Dorman's character ended up dead, even though I probably shouldn't have been because they made such a big point out of locking that door that obviously something was going to happen there. Um, I I, I don't know. I that can't is, even I all... can't
0: I, I can't even remember like it, it, it's it's just convoluted a little bit too much. Like I think they tried to do a little too much with the plot there. It's like he at some point in a way, moment that I don't think we were shown might've like kind of like figured out that, you know, might've figured out the thing about, you know, Rowena poisoning her. So they find it's like, he might've blackmailed her at some point. So she calls him while he's in this room and says, I found it out, but I might kill your son if you don't kill yourself. And it's like, I don't know. It, it felt like a lot of steps to like kind of retro, like to kind of retrofit these motivations onto them. Like after the fact, just to get all the plot twisted. To, in theory, track for the audience is what it kind of felt like for me. It just felt like they were doing a little too much.
1: It, it's a big leap. I will mm-hmm. say it kind of all made sense because Poirot, he's also just
0: haunted. Yeah,
1: he, he's compromised. Yes, he's compromised during the entire investigation because mm. he's seeing spirits, he's hearing voices. So either he's actually going, in- so either he's going insane. There's some kind of genuine haunting happening in the house, or he's been drugged. Mm. And he, I, I, I guess you can kind of sent put together the. Because he has the mind that he has, he can probably put all those pieces together that we mere mortals cannot and kind of make it all make sense. I do think that all the information is there, but yes, I do agree that like putting all of that together and extrapolating some of the conclusions that he reaches does seem a little ridiculous uh, with the benefit. yeah, so I of guess it,
0: maybe it's fair to say maybe it's fair to say it tracks, but it just doesn't do it in as you know uh, mm-hmm. in as tight of a way as it could and as you would want from a as you would want from a, a a mystery movie that in theory like you know should just be you want them to be leaner so they either it's just i mean i don't know i guess there maybe are shaggy mystery movies out there but like this is one that i feel like could 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 benefit from just being a little tighter than it than it actually is um we we all and then so you know i i just made that comment about the blackmailing and then we get the final revelation that this jude hill character who is like you know 11 years old but talks like he's like you know uh, like 41 uh he 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 actually might have been the guy that was kind of doing it all this time because his dad was just such a wreck and he needed to like, and spend all their money and he needed to find a way to like, you know, pay the bills. <laughs> um, did that feel too tacked on for you?
1: Yeah. It's funny. That kid actually gave a better Artemis Fowl performance than the actual Artemis Fowl character did in that movie because the, Artemis Fowl is supposed to be a criminal mastermind and a child genius. So that's really who should have played that character and how he should have been depicted in that movie. Hmm. Uh, but yeah, that felt a little weird, especially it doesn't really get paid off. I mean, Poirot mentions it, and then yeah, wait, we find wait, out that wait, it was wait. the one who Milton, but he still gets to go away with uh, Camille Cotton's character, Olga, and it just... I, I don't know, it just felt like... The, I, the movie just feels like it needed to involve too many characters in the final resolution, like everybody somehow involved and played a part in it. And that's just kind of the last bit that he needed to tack on.
0: Well, and they wanted at the end, they wanted to have the thing they had at the end of the first couple of movies where like Perot having to make like a choice based on some other information he learns. Like he could turn the kid in, but he's going to like look the other way. And they always want him to have that final, I guess, like moral dilemma to show that he's not going to follow everything to the exact letter of the law and he'll he'll live by his own code or whatever. But it just I don't know if you really needed that. You know, I think like they, they put him through the ringer enough in the rest of the movie to get him to a point where like you didn't need to have that there for me to believe he would help that guy at the end of the movie that he blew off at the beginning of the movie, you know. No. So,
1: I found that I mean, you're right, that is kind of his mo at the end. That there's always that one scene where he kind of compromises the principles you would expect a genuine detective to have, but I thought that was handled a lot more interestingly at the end of Death on the Nile, where definitely. It's strongly, so I don't remember how strongly it is implied in the movie, but it's definitely very strongly suggested in the book that he intentionally leaves them with the gun to be able to shoot themselves rather than be convicted of their crimes and potentially hanged for it. Mm. So I found that to be the more interesting choice because obviously that seems to go completely against something you would expect a character in that position to do. And Mm. here it just doesn't really lead to anything major in terms of ethical considerations he just kind of lets the kid go and then resumes uh his career as a detective even though you would think after the events of this movie he would be even more discouraged arguably and be even more depressed
0: Mm, yeah fair point fair point um uh, fred anything else about this movie that we didn't already touch on that you would like to mention before we wrap up
1: i still think people should go see it like you said earlier i Hope that he gets to keep making them. Again, I find them interesting, and I like that he tried something different for this one. So, I don't know. He seems to be kind of immune to box office results, just going by what Death on the Nile earned. Um, part of me is like part of me is like
0: this is some like old white man privilege, you know that he doesn't get put in director jail if he's making these movies that don't make money. but like selfishly, I'm like it's also cool if like there's more 60 million dollar movies made even if like you know, it's not exactly like fully original if it's being adapted. It's still something that's like getting made in that budget range and like you know, I feel like people should just keep getting cracks at it until someone like hits and then they'll be more likely to fund more of them. you know.
1: And it's nice to get like a good looking franchise movie. A- again, like he clearly tried to do right by this material. He got the right people on board. And it's nice to see that he cares. Um, mm-hmm. Like you said, like the results might not be perfect, but it's still nice to see the effort put in because a lot of studio fare nowadays really feels like cookie cutter assembly line stuff that they just want to make a quick buck out of. And this felt a little bit more genuine uh, to my mind. And I appreciated that.
0: Yeah. One thing I'll say was like, you know, a little odd that like the only other thing I was going to add was that it's kind of funny that like this movie is set in Venice and there was literally like one Italian person in the whole cast. <laughs> um it was uh, uh, uh Ric- ricardo scamarchio who uh is it was like the bad guy in john wick too it was like oh wow ah, like yeah. that guy you know and i was like i never i never really seen him in anything else because i think i guess he was uh you know he I, yeah i don't actually think i've ever seen him in anything else other than john wick too because he like does a lot of italian stuff it looks like but also yeah. like does some you know does some english language stuff oh he was in he was in uh, Woody Allen's To Rome with Love, which I mean, I actually saw in theaters, but uh, not, not yeah, not, not not much else that most people have probably ever seen because he's just an Italian dude. But like, I I like that guy, and he's he's like very, you know. He, he's like not a good dude in the John wick movie. So it was kind of funny to see him play someone that like, at least on the surface, is like, no, much more honorable here. And I, I enjoyed seeing that, but it is just kind of weird. It's like, all right, we're going to be in Venice, but like, I just want to have all my, like all my, my, all my English and American collaborators, uh, Michelle, Yo accepted, uh, and, uh, Oh, Camille Cotton's French, but yeah. Um, you know uh for, for the for the most part though it's just like it's just kind of funny it's like a bunch of people that just like you know do not seem italian at all in venice but like it whatever it's it's, it's a small thing in the grand scheme of things And i i, I cocked it as i was watching but i didn't really hinder my enjoyment of the movie at all it's just kind of it's just kind of weird
1: <laughs> yeah so as, as opposed to the large amount of egyptians in the cast for death on the nile right
0: all right, but like th- those are like supposed to be tourists, you know, at least yeah. like you know, uh, and he, he here it's like you know, like these people like are all just like all these white people, or not white people, uh, of course they're white, but like uh, just, just, just all these like English and American people that just like happen to be hanging out in Venice in 1949. That, that is a little odd, but you know, it, it is what it is, Fred. I think I think that about wraps it up for uh, haunting in Venice, it, it, as you can tell. Like, you know, we, we had we have our reservations, but I think Fred and I are pretty positive on this compared to the other stuff that came before, so you know, good for Kenneth for turning around a little bit. Uh, Fred, before we get out of here, anything else you've been watching recently that you would like to direct the listeners to? It's been a while since you've been on. I imagine you've watched a couple things you've enjoyed in the last month or so.
1: I have, yes. Uh, so you might remember that we had a bit of a Sundance discussion a few months ago. Um, some of that stuff that played there is becoming available on streaming services now. Um, I would like to direct people's attention to Hulu, uh, where a theater camp just dropped a few days ago. Uh, which I tremendously enjoyed. Uh, Logan also uh, got a great kick out of it. She did drama in high school, Mm. so she was able to relate to some of that. Uh, Really wholesome experience. It's funny, a sort of quasi-mockumentary set uh, uh, in a theater camp in upstate New York um, where you have the founder fall into a coma, so this kind of incompetent finance bro takes over the operations who has no idea what he's doing. And then there are a whole bunch of conflicts amongst the instructors who are trying to put a a big new play together within a few weeks. But uh, it's really hard to make that happen when some people aren't on the same page. So I really enjoyed that. It was the kind of wholesome, fun content that you get out of Sundance sometimes um, that is never really going to make a a ton of money at the box office, but that I really hope uh, streaming services uh, can get an audience for and uh, i do believe uh fair play is coming out on netflix relatively soon as well we did record a pod on that a while back
0: did it play again at one of the other festivals i feel like i sensed the something about that and it was like gonna pr- play at another festival here before it actually like you know Oh no, it, it played at it, it played at Toronto last week. I just didn't see a lot of people oh, talking okay. about it. it. Had its international premiere at the forty eighth T- T- International Toronto Film Festival on September eleventh. I just I didn't see like I saw like any new flurry of people talking about it. But yes, it will be on Netflix on October thirteenth. So uh, I got got already got an episode in the bank for that, which is nice. Uh, you know, it's 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 been, it's been through a little bit of a dry spell with the movies, and there's not a, a, even a ton coming out the next few weeks, even. So that's one that I don't think is moving because like you know a lot, a lot of these movies have like moved their release dates, but Netflix has just kind of kept all of its stuff on the calendar. So you know, uh, make of that uh, what you will. But yes, uh, we'll have that episode with Fred, you know, in less than a month now. And uh, they can, if you make it to theater camp on Hulu, because like Fred said, unfortunately, it's not going to get a massive theater audience, but I think it'll do well in Hulu. Then you can go back and listen to the episode I did with our friend Maya on it. She grew up going to the camp that it's inspired on. So she uh, she, she, had like a lot of insight into what it is like in that culture and what the movie got right about it. I do not have any really have anything else to recommend at the moment that I've seen because I am been uh, incredibly busy and uh, just you know have not have not really made time to do much over the last like you know a couple weeks besides you know watch football and work and record the podcast so. Uh, I, next week we will. Next week we will probably have a new episode on Dumb Money, and I am really not sure what's coming out between that and Fair Play. But you know, funny enough, they're both kind of like you know, uh, movies, uh, finance industry adjacent, or or even or no, I shouldn't even say adjacent movies involving different sectors of the finance industry. So you know, those two are related. But I will have something in between those two. I just don't know what yet. So, uh, Fred, uh, before you get out of here, where can people follow you on social media and Letterbox and all that stuff?
1: Yep, follow me on Letterboxd. The username is uh, frederick0702. Or you can just type in my name, which is Fred Kolb, uh, F-R-E-D-K-O-L-B. Uh, I just did a, a week of Kenneth Branagh movies. So mm-hmm. if you want some more Kenneth Branagh content in addition to what we just talked about, uh, feel free to check out some of my reviews there. Um, and on Twitter, um, well, X, I suppose. Fred, uh, I, 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 I get it.
0: I'm gonna get get you that blue sky invite. We're about to all move over there after Elon starts charging us for X.
1: <laughs> yes, uh, that is apparently going to be a thing. soon. <laughs> Until then, feel free to follow me there. Uh, my handle is Fred the German. Uh, I might have actually start tweeting enthusiastic uh, Gator content now that they're actually decent in football again. So. Hey.
0: There you go. Uh, as usual, I'm Josh Trenovoy, J-O-S-H-J-U-R-N-O-V-O-Y on both uh, Twitter slash X and Letterboxd and, uh, and on uh, podcast X West Twitter is at RealMoviePod. Podcast email is RealMoviePod at gmail.com. I want to thank Fred again for joining and I want to thank all of you for listening. We will see you next time.